It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. This is one of those episodes in which it's hard to choose a starting point because I have so many questions for today's guest, Ashok. And we're going to be talking a lot about neuroplasticity, which is a subject matter I haven't touched upon often enough. It comes up in some ways, these ideas around chronic illnesses I've touched upon. Of course, happiness, health, those are the main topics of the show in general. I've talked a little bit about COVID, which is likely to come up in this conversation because Ashok is a long COVID researcher. And here we are in 2023. There's still things that I don't understand about that. I would love to learn about that as well. The chronic illness, I think, is something that feels like a bit of a mystery to me. And given that I don't have a medical background, there's a lot that I don't understand beyond myself. And even within myself, (laughs) I have a lot of confusion. And I would love to begin with the amygdala, which maybe sounds like a big jump from something a little simpler and more commonly understood like health, happiness, illness. But amygdala seems to play a huge role in your work, Ashok. And so I would love to start there for somebody to give them a basic understanding of the amygdala in case they don't know what it is at all and where it is in the brain. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me on your podcast. So it's an absolute delight to be here. So the amygdala, there are two of them, and they're essentially brain structures that sit behind the eyes in the limbic system part of the brain. And in that part of the brain, our limbic system, that's generally what we would describe as the more unconscious part of the brain, and especially dealing with our protective reactions to our environment, but also our emotional reactions are all stored in the limbic system. And the amygdala specifically is dealing with threat detectors, so detecting threats, especially fight or flight responses. And previously in psychology, it was seen as PTSD might be stored in the amygdala. Other fear responses, phobias would be stored in the amygdala. But actually, they've realized recently that the amygdala is also responsible for uh, pain gateway as well in terms of how we perceive pain and our danger response to pain. And also potentially involved in the immune system as well. So this is really fascinating because we as human beings in our modern society, we have this very reductionist philosophy of in medicine of, right, go to a hospital. This is the separate immunology department. This is the physiology department. This is the psychology department. But the brain doesn't differentiate between threats or potential triggers. It treats it as one package with one brain structure coordinating all of those different responses which is why holistic medicine and the idea of integrated medicine is a more powerful concept in my mind, because that's the way our brains and our bodies work. Beautifully said. And that opens up a lot of questions. So this was a perfect way to begin. And it makes sense. I'll just dive into some of the elements I can relate to on a personal level. I've been thinking a lot about fight or flight response. And Ashok, I started telling you about my journey with figuring out sleep. And I've actually really been wondering 
based on my symptoms, which are mostly sleepwalking and panics. I often wake up with my heart racing or I wake up thinking a dream is real. And it does feel like I'm in this fearful state of trying to run away. And I've literally tried to run away from some dreams and done that through sleepwalking. And it's the question I keep bringing up to medical professionals. It's something I often ask my therapist about. And so now it seems like maybe the amygdala is playing a role in my experience. So for somebody who is experiencing fear, whether it's like me or or coming up in different ways, is the amygdala the first place to focus on? There are many fear centers in the brain, but actually the amygdala is a focal point for it. So a centralized point for fear and also for anger responses as well. There's another area of the brain called the periaqueductal gray, which is further down in the brain. And that part of the brain is also linked heavily to the amygdala. And both of those areas are our kind of unconscious reaction to our environment. And the way to think about fear is when we experience, let's say, a fearful situation or a fearful person that we might be afraid of, or we're anticipating something in the future. What happens is when we experience that, our brains are designed to process that. So through self-reflection and through other activities, talking it out with somebody, we're able to process our fear response. And that helps the fear then reset itself, come back to a normal state. Okay? But sometimes what happens is, let's say a fear from our past has not been processed, or we might be re- experiencing repeated fear for whatever reason, or we may be just having a very stressful period in our lives. And sometimes it's not stress, it's just very busy period. What can happen is those unconscious fears are not being processed. Then what will happen, the brain will attempt to process our fears at night, which is why in modern society, we have a chronic overload of insomnia, of people not getting enough sleep, not getting enough deep sleep, which is then causing and contributing to anxiety and depression in the general population. And one of the reasons for that is actually our devices. So wind back 10, 12 years ago, we weren't spending that time on tablets and phones. In the last 10 years, we spent a lot of time on our tablets and phones. And whenever we have uncomfortable emotions or we're going through challenges, we use our phones and tablets as a distraction device from processing those emotions. Not only that, when we reach for our devices, those devices themselves do not allow our nervous system to calm down. They actually engage our nervous system and create more fight or flight. Put on top of that, we know the inevitable comparisons that we make with other people when we're on social media, and it becomes a toxic mix of overstimulation of our nervous system, which then interrupts sleep and plays out at night. And I've seen this time and time again. And obviously, I'm not diagnosing what you have, Whitney, but I'm just describing some of the common things that people experience in insomnia. Yes, thank you for that. I feel like that must be very relatable. And something else I've spoken a lot about recently is changing my relationship with devices. Actually, this year in 2023, I've really made a conscious effort with that. I, for a while, for about four months, was off social media about 99%. I was only using it on occasion for some work-related things. And the last few weeks, I decided to integrate LinkedIn specifically. And I've been using that a little bit more. And it's amazing to watch me go back to some old habits. I thought four months, like I'm going to be changed. Social media isn't going to tempt me at all. But I got lured back into LinkedIn. I actually wasn't using LinkedIn that much in the past, but I'm lured back into 
that social media experience. And you're right, the comparison side of it is so strong. And I think spending four months away from most social media helped me notice it more, where I'm able to connect my emotions to some of the things that I'm seeing, like the times that I don't feel so good because somebody is posting about a great event career-related, which can be a big trigger. You know, somebody's success they're sharing. It is hard not to fall into that comparison trap. And it's hard not to struggle with self-worth, self-esteem. And even this conversation with you, I'm thinking, I want to go back to that period of really limiting it because it doesn't seem to be worth the cost of usage. Absolutely, Whitney. And it's very open and vulnerable for you to share those thoughts. And I think that's exactly what we see at the clinic time and time again, which is that the ultimate fear we all have is that we're not good enough and we're not loved. So they call that obviously the fear of rejection and the fear of failure. And ultimately, those fears are proxies for fear of abandonment. So when we were back in our tribal days and our caveman days, as they might call it, the ultimate fear and survival instinct was to not be abandoned by your tribe. Because if you're abandoned by a tribe, you cannot survive. And therefore, wanting the tribe to approve of you and love you and not to reject you and for you to feel that you are a worthy contributor to the tribe was very, very important. Fast forward to the modern day, suddenly we're not comparing ourselves to the 100 people who might live in our tribe. We're comparing ourselves to millionaires and billionaires and beautiful actresses and models. So we're comparing the worst feeling we have inside about ourselves against the best 1% that everyone else is portraying. And that gap becomes what we call the gap of insecurity yeah, or fear. And then that fear, as it starts developing within us, there are little micro doses of that insecurity that we keep experiencing day after day after day, which then impact on our unconscious. And it becomes very subtle. We don't even notice it. It's not like someone's said, you're worthless or you're rubbish. No, but these are little micro events that keep accumulating in the unconscious, which then interrupt our levels of happiness and once again, interrupt our levels of sleep. And that's why we see that over the last 10 years, if you look at graphs of anxiety, depression, insomnia, they've all increased at the same time as mass social media became available on phones. There's a direct correlation. And that's why our attitude to social media and the way that we use it and the way we use devices is incredibly important for our health and well-being. Well, I'd love to touch upon some more of your recommendations for that because it's hard to get away from social media. I mean, I know at least your team is using social media for your business, right? I think a lot of people do that, whether it's themselves directly or somebody working with themselves, they're using social media to market. And that's something I'm on a side note, very curious about, like, because we've gotten to this place where social media feels an important way to either sell something or connect with somebody. What do we do instead if it's not there? That's been a big question for me this year. And I'm curious for you, how do you find balance? Are you looking for other avenues? And what's also your relationship with social media personally versus professionally? Yeah, great questions. And I think for us, we have some guidelines that we give to our patients and certainly I live by, which I find very useful. So the first thing is, what is our usage or what is our attitude to social media? Are we using it to something that is soul enhancing or soul crushing? <laughs> right? 
And what I mean by that is in life, we can use not just social media, but so many different things around us, our social life, uh, the way that we watch television. Are we using it as a, first of all, a mindless distraction? Are we using it to just fill time? It's a mindless distraction. It's passive entertainment. And actually, are we using it to compare ourselves to others? If we use it in that way, what we're doing is naturally triggering our nervous system, triggering our insecurities, and therefore it can have detrimental effects to our mental health. However, just like life in general, if we're using social media as growth enhancing or soul enhancing, where we're looking to learn something specific, or we're learning to connect with someone specific, if we haven't a goal or an outcome in mind, then it's more life enhancing because it's a specific goal. And so that's the thing. Is there a specific goal I have that is life enhancing? Or actually, am I just using it in a mindless way? And therefore, all the detrimental effects can then come. So that's one way of, of kind of differentiating our usage. And then secondly, the time, just limiting the time that we spend on social media. And so there's now even apps out there that automatically lock your social media after 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. But really, those things aren't going to work because I know people who get those apps and then switch them off because they're addicted. And therefore, if you have an addiction, it's like a crack addict. If you've got a crack addiction, you're not going to suddenly lock it in a drawer. You're going to unlock the drawer and get it out of the the drawer. So in the same way, those things that generally I find don't work, but what really works is just awareness, just building that awareness of, okay, I'm now gone into the mindless state rather than the mindful state around my social media. And I, I don't want to stop and shut that down. And then that's also about having reminders that remind us, okay, we only do 10 minutes of random surfing at any one point in time, rather than just it becoming a continuous scrolling and scrolling, endless scrolling. So can you put time limits? Can you build that awareness within yourself? And can you make sure that you have other activities in your life that then substitute for passive scrolling? Speaking of other activities, what I noticed when I deleted the apps from my phone about four or five months ago, that in itself was easy. The decision to not use it felt relatively easy because I had that awareness you're mentioning. But what was challenging was the way my brain seemed to be reacting. It felt like I was going through withdrawal. And I remember asking myself, what do I do now, given that social media has given me so many dopamine hits, essentially. I mean, it's. I think you mentioned this earlier. It's something I would do sometimes mindlessly, but sometimes I was aware I wanted a boost and I wanted the fix. So I would go to social media because I knew there was at least a chance it would make me laugh or I would learn something new, which would give me a little boost of satisfaction or I would feel connected. I would meet someone or, of course, as social media is designed, I would get that wonderful high of seeing that I got likes or comments or whatever on the content I was posting. So when I removed all of that, the question became, what do I do instead? So what are some activities that can help people step away and work through that period of withdrawal where it seems like very few things in life, aside from like going to the casino, which there's a direct correlation between how social media is built and things like slot machines, they're designed to be addictive. So when you remove the stimulus, what do you do instead? Right. So I think the first point here is that 
there doesn't need to be necessarily a dichotomy. So as you say, I think there is a safe way of using social media and using screens, which can be life enhancing. So you still get the positive fix without the downside. So it doesn't become a dopamine withdrawal exercise. It just becomes something which is moderated and used in a healthy way. But let's say people do think, look, I'm an all or nothing person, you know, so the certain addicts in certain ways, they just have to it's a tea to- become teetotal or nothing. It's not going to work as a halfway house. And so what I advise is we start living according to our human nature in terms of more human connection. I think this is the most important thing. So first of all, substituting screen time with people for real world experiences. So that's enhancing our social life, meeting more people, doing more activities together. And that's, for me, quite obvious. But then secondly, is really looking at our self-growth and self-knowledge through different avenues. And therefore, that's probably more reading, more self-development, self-improvement workshops, meditation retreats, all of these things where we are learning, but it's more in a social environment where we feel connected to those around us. And thirdly, a program of regular meditation, I believe what that does is that balances out some of the more addictive aspects of the brain and makes it less likely that we can become addicted in the future and can balance out dopamine, endorphins, etc. Meditation is kind of a universal uh, tonic, as it were, for many different aspects of mental health, not for everybody, but for most people. And so things like that can also help. But my number one is really communing with nature. Nature has such a healing effect on all of these systems in the brain. And this is now where it gets can get a bit woo-woo, but there's an energetic aspect to it, which is when you go in a forest, we know that people be in a forest or an ocean or being on a mountain, their physiology calms down immediately, really powerfully. They start feeling happier, their physiology, their immune system gets boosted. And therefore, there are vibrational energetic effects that happen when we go into more natural environments. And so that's something else that can support us when we're kind of having a cold turkey withdrawal from our screens. Well, I feel lit up by hearing that advice because I did notice that when I cut out social media, I wasn't truly all or nothing because like I said, there was still some usage happening, but I suppose I might be in that category of people that does better when it's a bit more all or nothing because moderation can be tricky for me. I think it just feels simpler and I wanted it to feel like back to basics. And what I did with all the extra time I gained back, which was several hours a day, was start reading more. And Mm. I would agree that reading more filled me with so much fulfillment. And the learning, the growth I was doing reading nonfiction, I started actually reading fiction and that felt stimulating for the creativity side. And it Mm. filled the entertainment gap that social media might've left. And then spending time in nature, I I couldn't agree more. I, a few years ago, started visiting more national parks in the United States, and that has really made a huge difference in my life. But actually, even more recently, in the past week or so, I started aiming to take a hike every day. And I live in Los Angeles. We are in Southern California. We have a lot of areas to hike, but we still are in a big city. So I had to start to be very intentional about going to find nature, to be around more trees and dirt and less pavement and cars. And I couldn't agree more with some of the things that you said about 
how much of a difference it's made in my mental health in just a week of doing that consistently and noticing how my anxiety has decreased, my curiosity has increased, my connection has increased. And I also have opportunities to connect with people a little bit differently because when you're in nature, there's a different dynamic that happens than when you're out on the sidewalk or on social media where it can feel like everyone's moving so quickly and it feels a bit more transactional. I think when you're in nature, there's a different relationship that we have with ourselves and other people. Yeah, that's exactly right. Nature is healing. And if you think about it, for the vast majority of our evolution, we would be living and communing with nature. The idea of living in a concrete jungle is a very modern concept, actually. And therefore, the mental challenges that then come as a result of that are very modern challenges. So I really would advise, yeah, walking in nature. They know 30 to 40 minutes of walking in nature, forest, beach, park even, can be works wonders for your mental health, far more powerful than even antidepressants. And then regular meditation, getting some physical exercise as well can also be amazing for mental health. And then once again, reducing screen time. All of these things can be very powerful. And would you say that there is a big difference between walking in nature and doing more of a traditional meditation? Or would you consider that time in nature a type of meditation? It's a type of mindfulness, but I wouldn't say it's a substitute for meditation. So I see many modern teachers talking about, oh, we can go and do a walking meditation. That's just as good as a sitting down meditation. Personally, I acknowledge that as a viewpoint, but it's not something I agree with. Those are not substitutes and they are different experiences for the brain. And nothing beats actually sitting down with your eyes closed and training. It's a training of the mind to be able to not be reactive to your thoughts, but observe your thoughts. And no other experience can substitute for that. I love the passion that you have for that perspective. And I want to hear more about that because I actually really struggle with sitting down to meditate. I know I can do it. It's much easier for me in a class setting. So for instance, I've been to a lot of meditation classes and it feels simple for me under the guidance of a teacher to sit down and follow the instructions and go through it. But I've never been able to consistently meditate on my own at home, even though I I know all the different, you know, I think this brings up an important thing and going back to awareness. I think a lot of us know what to do or what we can do. We get a lot of advice on health and it makes sense on a logical level, but actually implementing it, that can feel like a struggle. So it's not that I don't have a place to meditate. It's not that I don't have the time to meditate. It's not that I don't have a plethora of tools that I've either learned or I could pull up on my phone, ironically, and listen to a meditation track. It's actually just doing it consistently that's tough for me. Mm. So how does someone like me get into a practice with that resistance? Yes. So the first thing here is that often when we say we can't get into the practice, what we often feel is that, right, I need to be meditating and I need to have an experience. Yeah. And that's a bit like going to the gym and thinking, I want to have an experience, but realizing it's a training course initially, certainly for the, the really beneficial effects to come. And so you could be sitting there at home meditating and it's supremely uncomfortable. Your body aches, you've got all these thoughts and emotions coming up and you're sitting there thinking, I can't meditate. This is not working, right? It's just agitating me. And 
this is because often meditation has been once again taught incorrectly in the modern world, I find, where it's recognizing that meditation is not about having an empty mind. Yeah. If you suddenly close your eyes and you have no thoughts, just check your pulse because, you know, are you still alive? <laughs> right. But actually, meditation is more about the training. It's training to become the observer. So we have when you close your eyes, you'll experience a huge amount of turmoil. Yeah, you'll experience the thoughts, the emotions, the distractions. And the difference between meditation and normal experience is that in meditation, you suddenly become aware of it. So you're like, oh, actually, my mind's pretty busy. OK, I'm having another thought. Oh, I'm having another thought and accepting all of it. And that might happen the first few meditations that we do at home by ourselves. But eventually, as we train ourselves to become the observer, we no longer add fuel to the fire. So the thoughts are like a fire. The more you have thoughts about the thoughts, the more you fuel the fire. But the more you just are the silent witness to say, oh, look, lots of thoughts. That's totally fine. Totally accept all of that. Then that fire burns out and you start experiencing some of the glimpses of that stillness. And that might take you a week. That might take you a day. That might take you two weeks. It might take you a month. But it is worth it because it's training your mind to be the observer and less reactive to your thoughts and emotions. Then what happens is you start experiencing what some people see as the goals or the outcomes of meditation, where it's just more of that still mind. And interestingly, the reason people experience more of a still mind in a group setting is because there is, once again, not to get too woo-woo, but there is a group effect of meditation. That when you're meditating, you're benefiting from the channel that your neighbor has opened up to that oneness. So rather than you creating that channel yourself, you've got 50 channels in that room and you're all benefiting from that collective meditation. And you can recreate that at home by, with that patience, just doing it every day with that patience, even if it feels uncomfortable. And then in terms of a habit, it is just saying, right, just like brushing my teeth or having a shower, every day I clean my body from the physical dirt, but every day I'm accumulating mental dirt from worries, anticipations, arguments, that mental dirt is not going anywhere. It's accumulating and accumulating until we get anxiety and stress. So instead, let me cleanse it from my mind every day. And so I think with meditation, it's just saying that 20 minute slot each day, I'm just going to have a regular slot. And for most people, I find it has to be the morning because once the day starts, it's very difficult to plan it in. So just in the morning, having a morning routine, which is just sacrosanct, which is say whatever happens in my day, this is my thing. And I call it the hour of power in the morning. We all need that hour of power. And the hour of power that I use is I wake up and have a big glass of water that might have some lemon or some cucumber in it. So make it alkaline. So have a big glass of water in the morning. Then straight off that glass of water, I will then exercise. So I'll do my cardio for 20, 25 minutes. So that's my cardio time. Then I shower and then I do my process of yoga, breathing and meditation. But if you don't want to do the yoga and breathing, that's fine. A few minutes of deep breathing followed by that sacrosanct 20-minute meditation. And I know that that sets me up energy-wise, emotion-wise, happiness-wise, sets me up for the day. So I believe everyone on our planet can benefit from an hour of power, which is that hour dedicated to our self-care. And once we get that out of the way in the morning, then we don't need to think about it for the rest of the day. And it's already pre-trained our brain to be centered and calm. And so I would just advise to everybody, find that 20-minute slot which becomes your regular habit. That's the only way it's going to happen. And say to yourself, five days a week, doesn't matter seven days, five days a week, I'm going to have that 20 minutes of me time for me and have a trust that over time, 
that will have incredible beneficial effects for you. Because we're very transactional. We want benefits straight away. Hey, I'm doing this. What's the benefit? What's the benefit? With meditation, it is like brushing your teeth. You're not going to notice the benefits straight away. But over time, you're going to have good, healthy, strong teeth. And in the same way, you're going to have a good, healthy, strong mind with that regularity. I've heard advice like that before, but there's something about the way you're saying it that's hitting home for me. And maybe it's just the stage that I'm at right now in my life. And I think that's an important thing too, the context in which we hear things or the readiness that we have. And I can apply it to my experiences recently of taking daily walks and noticing how much that's impacted me. It hasn't just been the nature. The nature side of it is relatively new, but since November, 2022, so I guess it's been about six or seven months now, I've been taking daily walks. And I started off just doing any walk. My beginning stage was I'm just going to leave my house and go outside. I would like to walk for 30 minutes because I wanted to get in that minimum amount of movement each day. And I remember the resistance because I was thinking, gosh, like outside my door, it's just concrete. Outside my door, yes, there are trees. They're around. But I think of the roads and the sidewalks. And I, I wanted to actually just go walk on a trail, but that felt hard to drive somewhere, to plan out where I was going to walk in nature. And so the beginning stage for me was just walking out the door, aiming for 30 minutes and seeing what happens. And to reflect back on how much of a difference that's made over the past six or seven months that I've been doing it is helpful for me thinking about meditation because I can look back and see how I overcame resistance and how I was able to develop a habit and how it became a non-negotiable for me over time. In order to make it a habit, I had to be committed to it in the very beginning. And now it's very easy for me. I just take a walk every day. So the way you're phrasing this, the training element of it is really helpful because I, I don't know if I've ever really looked at meditation as training or as similar to exercise. I think I've been looking at meditation as a bonus, as a nice to have, not a must to have or must to, mm. must have. <laughs> a must have. And I would say that's exactly right. It is a must have in our modern society. In fact, with the levels of stress and stimulation that most people have, I don't know how people survive without it, right? <laughs> you know, it's such a must have. And therefore, I encourage everybody to really develop that regular practice. And sometimes we have to do something and we don't see the results straight away. So, so often the things that are beneficial for us, it's initial discipline, but we see the benefits down the line. Yeah. Most things which are bad for us, we see the benefits straight away. <laughs> you know, that instant gratification is often something which isn't necessarily good for us longer term. And if we look at it that way, that we make that investment, just like you invest in a company, you don't to see the results straight away, but you know that over time you're going to see those benefits. And that's useful context too, because I think that's why social media has become so addicting is there's so much instant gratification, even though many of us have become aware of how it doesn't make us feel good. But the pull of the gratification is so strong for most of us, myself included, that I can overlook all the downsides over and over again unless I become very conscious of it. And that does seem opposite to meditation, which, I mean, I think meditation is amazing and I know I feel good, but it's that long-term habit-building process that makes me think, eh, I'll keep putting it off. Oh, maybe I'll only do it 
when I'm in a class or something. Like that's just been my mindset. And I feel inspired and very curious now to see what would happen if I did look at it as that must have, must do training process and equated it to a lot of the other experiences I've had with health. And speaking of training, I know your specialty is the neuroplasticity brain retraining. So I'd love to hear more about how you define brain retraining. Sure. So we help people with different conditions. So overall, what we've talked about so far is people in the general population, preventative health care, how they can improve their health. But we specialize in treating people with chronic conditions, chronic illnesses like long COVID, fibromyalgia, ME and chronic fatigue syndrome, mold illness, these mysterious illnesses that mainstream medicine find very difficult to treat. And we base it upon this idea of neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is the idea that our brain is very flexible and malleable and changeable. So previously, they thought our brains have this factory setting from our childhood and they're pretty much fixed for the rest of our lives. In the last 20 years or so, we realized that actually the brain is very flexible. It's constantly rewiring itself. All those neurons can change. And therefore, this new industry of neuroplasticity. And specifically, we believe that a lot of illnesses are based upon, are actually caused in the brain rather than in the physical body. So to give an example of this, I always start with the biggest question of all, why are we here? <laughs> so we could ask that answer that from a philosophical perspective, but we're here for hours and hours. But let's start from the scientific perspective. We're here because this brain and this physiology and this nervous system has evolved over millions of years from plant life to single cell organisms, to invertebrates, to vertebrates, to reptiles, mammals, human beings. And this nervous system and this immune system is designed to ensure survival. We are survival machines. We adapt to our environment. And our DNA contains all the survival instincts of all the previous generations of species. So did you know we share about 40 to 50% of the same DNA as a banana, which I find incredibly fascinating. And our DNA actually incorporates a lot of the DNA of a reptile and other mammals as well. And because we're survival machines, the brain cares more about survival and passing on our genes to the next generation than it does about our health and well-being. And so let's take the example of COVID. So along comes COVID, a very terrible virus. And when we contract that virus, most people, their immune system switches on. So their defense system switch on, fights off the virus, and the immune system resets back to zero. But in some cases, if our immune system is weak, then what happens is that the immune system gets switched on. Let's say we've been stressed out or we're feeling vulnerable. And we know from uh, psychoneuroimmunology that our immune system is lowered when we're stressed out. So we're weak, we're vulnerable, and the virus comes along. Now, the immune system switches on to fight it off, but the immune system is less effective because of our stress. And that doesn't have to be emotional stress. It can also be physical stress as well. So we're fighting off the COVID-19 infection. It takes longer than perhaps it would normally. And finally, we fight it off. But imagine then it's left a legacy in the brain. The brain becomes traumatized by that experience and thinks, you know what? I don't know if we have fully fought off the virus. Any situations or experiences that are similar to what I experienced whilst I had the virus, that could indicate that the virus is still here. So every time we re-experience that, let's re-trigger the immune system and the nervous system. So now, even though the original virus is fought off, the brain is in this traumatized state where it continues to trigger the immune system and the nervous system, creating the symptoms in our bodies. Because most of us don't realize that actually 
the symptoms we experience from an infection don't come from the actual virus or the bacteria itself. The vast majority come from our own immune system fighting it off. So our immune system gets overstimulated chronically in the background, which then leads to the fatigue and exhaustion, the pain, the ongoing inability to concentrate, a lack of cognitive ability. Memory goes. We then also experience potential physical pain in the body. We have breathing difficulties, anxiety and depression. All of these come from an immune system and a nervous system, which is overreacting and overdefending. If I can just share with you a little analogy that really brings us alive. I don't know, Whitney, are you a Game of Thrones fan by any chance? I am. I am indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, for those listening, you might be a Game of Thrones fan, or if not, you know, let's just take a classic fairy tale. So imagine you are Queen Whitney, and you are the queen of your kingdom and your castle, okay? And you have generals, which are your army and your navy. Those are your two main defensive systems. So your army is your nervous system, and your navy is your immune system. Now, the invading army comes over the hill. That's the COVID-19 infection. Okay. Now, your kingdom has been under stress because there's been a drought. So there's been less resources available in the kingdom. So the army and navy are a little weaker. So they fight off the invading army coming over the hill. They fight it off valiantly. And they fought it off, but they only just managed to fight it off. And they took heavy wounding. So they come back to you as the queen and say, you know what? We only just managed to fight off the virus. We need all the resources of the kingdom now to make sure the kingdom doesn't fall. So we need the wheat, we need the corn, we need the iron, we need everything. So all resources now from the body get channeled to the immune system and nervous system, the army and navy. And then what they do is they become overreactive. So even if a child walks over that hill, they're so traumatized from the war that they start sending off lots of arrows and all the military machines to defend the kingdom. But what all that does is, once again, use up the resources of the kingdom. So there's no energy left for happiness, for playfulness, for all the other things that we want to do in life, apart from defend our systems and survive. And that's what I believe is happening in a plethora of different conditions. So long COVID, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, even pain syndrome. So many people, especially in the US, are, you know, there's a whole opioid scandal where people get localized pain syndromes. They're taking opioid medication, which is numbing the system, but then the system over-responds and those pain networks get traumatized and they keep stimulating and therefore people become more and more and more addicted to their pain medications. And once again, many pain syndromes are due to this over-stimulation and over-defensiveness on the part of the body. And even mold illness, even food sensitivity. So we treat a lot of people with food sensitivities. These are all trained responses. And what's really fascinating is that recent neurological research has pinpointed where this is happening. It's happening in the insula and the amygdala. So the amygdala, we already talked about in terms of defensive responses. But the insula is a small part of the brain that sits between the limbic system and the conscious mind or the cortex. And the purpose or or one of the purposes of the insula is to once again take in incoming physiological data from the body, interpret it and then create the appropriate response. And that includes the immune system. And recent neurological research in in animals has found that when we have an immune reaction, it gets stored in the insula, waiting for the next situation. And so even if we're not being physically threatened, our immune system can be triggered. And they've demonstrated this in in animal studies where some animals were uh, given substances that triggered inflammatory bowel syndrome in their stomachs or inflammatory bowel disease. They did that a few times. And then what they did was 
they found the electrical signature in the insula and the rats came back to normal. They then triggered the insula with the same electrical signature and they were able to create inflammatory bowel disease in the guts of these rats, rats, even though there was no external trigger, which was the first demonstration that showed that the insula is where we store our previous immune reactions. And therefore, by that being re-triggered, we may be overstimulating our systems. And brain retraining is where we retrain the amygdala and the insular parts of the brain. And so the retraining would be the generals are coming to Queen Whitney and saying, hey, we're under threat. We're under attack. What are we going to do? And you then say, OK, I really acknowledge that in the past, in the past situation, we were in danger. But now the danger is over. We are safe. There is no incoming army. You can stand down and relax. And that is the brain retraining, is the prefrontal cortex informing the amygdala and the insula and all other parts of the brain that we are now safe and there's no further danger. And then those systems calm down and reset, and then we get health back to our body. So that's how brain retraining works. Well, you've really sold me on it because... <laughs> Without knowing this about me, in addition to the sleep challenges I've had, food sensitivities has been, and I'll use the word battle here intentionally, it has felt like a big battle for me for about 20 years. And I've gone to countless doctors and done so many tests. In fact, I just got allergy testing out of curiosity again. And and I don't have any allergies aside from dust mites, I found out recently, <laughs> but I don't have food allergies. And I asked the doctor, well, why am I having all these reactions if I'm not allergic to these foods? Why is my body acting as if it doesn't want them in my body? And of course, there's a difference between allergies and intolerances and sensitivities and all of that. But now I'm, I'm looking at it a little bit differently after what you just said and, and very curious because no one's ever really spoken about it that I've heard in that sense. And I wonder if it's all connected. Is there something in my body that feels like it does have to defend so much, whether it's when I'm sleeping or when I'm eating food? And if brain retraining can help address that, I will try it. Yeah. Well, it absolutely does. And there's two types of what we call over-defending. There can be a generalized over-defending, which is the nervous system and immune system continuously triggered. And there can be very specific responses. As an example, hay fever. Once again, one person has hay fever, the other person doesn't. They share the same DNA. Uh, you know, you can get this in twin studies. Yet, why is one person reacting and the other person isn't? Because the brain has learned an over-defensive response. It just learned it out of nowhere. And 99% of these responses, they are overreactions. They're over-defensiveness to our environment. And if we understand that, we can reset it by training the brain to come back to balance. So we've had people use this for food sensitivities, intolerances, and even things like hay fever and mold illness, where you're training your brain that those substances are safe. Now, in your particular case there, what we can also find is that it may not come up on allergy testing or sensitivity testing, but we still feel we're sensitive. What happens there is if we're overstimulating our nervous system continuously in the background, as well as our immune system, that shifts the delicate balance of good and bad bacteria in our gut. It also tightens the gut, which makes us more sensitive to things which are generally sensitive in the population. And they tend to be foods like wheat, dairy, sugar, like all the things that we love. <laughs> and I was looking the other day, when you go to a shop, let's say a 7-Eleven, 
90% of the stuff in that shop is basically dairy, wheat, and sugar reconstituted in different packages, in different forms. Yet those three foods are the ones that I believe our gut are the most sensitive to. And so what we'll find is that when we're generally overstimulated, we will develop not only intolerances to those food, but potentially intolerances to other foods as well. And when we calm the overall system at a general level, our digestion heals, and then we're able to digest those foods. But there can be specific foods the brain has learned to be defensive towards. And that's where even our brain retraining can support those specific reactions. Well, you nailed it once again, because those are the top three foods I avoid. <laughs> I actually, it, I haven't eaten much gluten and or wheat in the past 10 years or so. Uh, it's probably been longer than that. But dairy also on a plant-based diet, it's been almost 20 years. And then sugar, absolutely. I'm on a low-carbohydrate diet now, and I feel so much better. In fact, my food reactions have diminished with that combination, but there's still things there to your point. So it has felt complex. And I'm amazed at how most of the doctors I've seen have not really known how to address it. And so I'm curious, your knowledge seems a bit rare in the medical system, but is that something just in the US? Is it because it's relatively new, like you mentioned before? I mean, just in the past 20 years, you saw so much development. So there's still a lot of catching up to do in the medical system. This is a very new area of medicine, and we believe it's the future, that neuroplasticity will be the new growth area and the new way that we treat so many different illnesses. And so we hope in five to 10 years time, when you go to your doctor with one of these illnesses, rather than them going through a plethora of tests and doing this and doing that, instead, they'll prescribe brain retraining because it will have an evidence base behind it. And the reason that this is new is because medicine relies on measurement. And therefore, it's all about what can we measure? So we can measure physiological reactions in the gut. We can measure enzymes. We can measure the inflammatory markers, right? So those are things we can measure. And therefore, we've always assumed that those reactions at the physiological level are where we need to intervene. But the brain has always been this black box. We don't understand the brain. It's like the central processing unit of the computer, right? It's the little chip in there. And to actually open up that chip and look at all the little capacitors in there, that's virtually impossible. But with modern technology, we're now peering in the brain and going, oh, actually, there's a huge amount of activity that's going on that we don't understand. And now through that brain scans and through these interventions, we realize actually a lot of illnesses show very unique signatures in the brain. And if we could target those signatures and retrain those signatures, maybe a lot of modern illness has its root in the brain. And therefore, could we do something about that? And therefore, these new techniques that have been developed, we've been at the forefront of that. And now it's all about the scientific evidence. So we've been running uh, clinical studies recently, and we finally published one of the first randomized controlled trials that was published a couple of years ago on fibromyalgia, pain syndrome. And it found that just after an eight-week intervention, in the control group, there was no impact. But in the active Gupta program group, there was a 40% reduction in fibromyalgia scores, there was a halving of pain, halving of anxiety and depression, and a 50% increase in functional capacity just in eight weeks. And so that's some objective clinical evidence we already have for fibromyalgia, and we're doing further clinical studies for other illnesses as well. So as we develop the evidence base, then more doctors will start appreciating this and start prescribing it to their patients. And already we have a lot of functional and integrative doctors incorporating it as part of their overall package of interventions. So this is a relatively new treatment, and I'm excited because 
it's really gaining ground. Like neuroplasticity is the hot new topic, especially in pain and pain syndromes. And recognizing that the way we've been treating all of these illnesses has not been effective in the past. That's beautiful and so exciting. And I'm curious for somebody who's listening to this and can identify with some of these chronic illnesses, maybe they have them or a loved one does, or they're just curious about this. Maybe they want to learn more about meditation training and just want to take the next step. Given that it's not fully embraced by most doctors, medical professionals yet, it might be early on. If you're like me and finding that you know the doctors you're currently seeing are are not really aware or embracing this, what is the next step? And how do you advocate for yourself? Is it as simple as just signing up for the Gupta program that you offer? Yes. So people can come to our website at guptaprogram.com and there they can sign up for a free trial. And what that gives them access to is lots of videos. We have lots of free meditations that people can experience as well. So you don't even need to sign up or pay for anything. There's lots of free resources that people can use. And if they then find that actually, yes, I do have a chronic illness and yes, I could benefit from this kind of thing, then they can join our full Gupta program. And there they'll have access to lots of video sessions, lots of audio exercises, all the brain retraining exercises are there and a very loving community, a very loving supporting community where we talk about the idea of social learning. So you're learning with other people and getting that mutual support. And we want to make it really easy for people. So until we get the large scale phase three medical trials, we offer a one year money back guarantee on our treatment. So people can go in, they can use it for up to a year. And if they notice no benefit, no questions asked, they can just return it and get their money back and use it for something else. That's how confident we are that people will benefit. And so we'd love for people to try this whole new area and also recognize that it's really gaining traction now. Like, so, you know, a few years ago, our program or similar program, people hadn't really heard of it, whereas now it's becoming more and more mainstream. And a lot of doctors are prescribing on the side if they can't do it formally through their insurance companies. And so, yeah, I would love for people to play with this, to practice it and see the incredible benefits that people can get. And what we've had is people with uh, long COVID, within weeks, people have been able to get 80 to 90% health back. Other people, it's taken a number of months. But it doesn't really matter. What matters is that as long as you're committed to the brain retraining, then it really can have a massive impact over a short period of time. Well, I'm curious about being committed because, first of all, I'm very interested in doing it myself. I mean, it sounds really interesting. Something like this is easy for me to commit to. There's somebody else in my life who I think could really benefit from this, but that person struggles with commitment. They struggle to sit down and follow a regimen. So for someone on that end of, of the commitment spectrum, how can they get themselves into this? Like I mentioned my own resistance, but I'm also somebody who, once I see the benefits, once I feel inspired and curious, I will try it and I will give it my best shot and likely fall into a habit. But there are, seem to be a lot of people who just struggle getting started. They'll come up with excuses they don't have as much perhaps internal intrinsic motivation and accountability for themselves. You mentioned your community, but perhaps they're maybe used to more traditional medical interventions and they like having a doctor in a doctor's office tell them what to do. How could they just get started with this program? I'm trying to think of like a number of people I can recommend it to and encourage along the way. And I, I feel a little bit lost on 
how to get them to actually do the things that are going to give them the long-term benefits. Of course, yeah. So the first thing there is the good news is we now have an app. So now most of us are so used to using apps that that means that it's instantly available in your pocket. It's not like you've got to think, right, I need to log onto a website and figure it out. It's all there available. And all the exercises I guide people through as well. So the meditations, the brain retraining, you can click of a button, you'll hear my voice and I guide people through. But I take your point that many people need to almost work in a community or a group. So something that we're setting up, which is very new, is called daily Gupta size. And what that is, is that every day, wherever you are in the world, there's a Zoom call, which you can tune into. And one of our instructors or coaches actually takes you through, first of all, the meditation and healing. And then secondly, the brain retraining. And what that means is that once again, if you're not someone who can sit down with a course and start watching the videos and figure it all out, it doesn't matter. Someone can hold your hand every day and you have that regularity of brain retraining. And we know that a lot of people are going to find that incredibly powerful because it's not just listening to something, but you can see everybody else. You've got that community, your friends now that you make in that community and you've got people supporting you. And that's something that we're going to be starting soon. And that I think will really solve that dilemma. That sounds so wonderful. And I appreciate how much intention and also legitimacy you're putting behind all of this, like through the studies and just the psychology of how people work. I mean, that has to be part of this because as I've said from the beginning of this episode, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of advice when it comes to our health, our mental health specifically, but just applying it can feel like a big challenge. And I would say to the listeners, since I intend on trying this, if anybody wants to a little bit of accountability with me, maybe we can form our own little group and that can be beneficial too. Is there a loved one in your life that you talk to or see regularly? Can you do it together? I think that can make a world of a difference knowing that you're not alone and maybe that in between before you get really connected to a community like yours. So lots of ideas for moving forward and just really appreciate the way that you think through all of these things and you talk about them. I feel very inspired. And as I said earlier, curious, very, very curious to see if this would work for someone like me. So maybe I I can be a a testimonial. This is my before. (laughs) I'll give it a try and I'll follow up on my after. And I'm kind of curious, lastly, how long do you think it takes to start to see results? Like if I am going to embark on this sometime soon and in uh, early to mid 2023, when could I expect to see some shifts in things like food sensitivities and sleep? It really is so individual. And the reason we don't give a timeline is because then that sets up an expectation in the mind and a person, oh, I failed. Whereas actually they might've just been on the cusp of, of retraining. So some people notice benefits within literally days. Some people, it takes weeks. Sometimes it takes months. Wherever we are on that scale, it is less about how long it's going to take because we, when we have these things, we don't care when we're going to get well. We just want to get well. It's more about just that continual commitment to doing the retraining. And we even say re-inspiration, just re-inspiring ourselves every day to do it. Because when we have a commitment and we drop it off for a week, then we think, oh, I failed. Oh, there's no point doing it. But we say, no, re-inspire yourself each day. It doesn't matter if you've had a gap. Just get back into the practice, train your brain, and any training that you've done in the past still counts and accumulates. And therefore, yeah, we call our program a six-month program in the sense that we want people to commit no matter what happens for a minimum of six months. And some people get better from 
food sensitivities or COVID within weeks. Others, it will take a few months. Otherwise, some people, minority might take five or six months to really see improvements. But it is so worth it to keep going no matter what. That's really helpful context, too. And I think you're absolutely right. The timelines can be tough. And we do have a tendency in our society to judge ourselves so much and have shame and frustration, the comparison that we mentioned earlier. But maybe this is an exercise in letting go of all of that and just being present in the moment and experiencing those benefits and letting go of that timeline of results and then being able to step back one day and look at all the progress you've made. And as I said, I've witnessed that through something as simple as walking every day. And I will keep the audience posted on my own journey with your program. I'm very excited. (laughs) I feel like I have some hope. Thank you for giving me hope that there's something different that I can try for myself that can improve my life in some significant ways that I've been struggling with for 20 something years. And I will make sure to link to the Gupta program for anyone who's interested. In fact, you can just look within your podcast player in the description. There'll be links there. There'll be a link to a full blog post. If you'd like to review the text from today, see some of the quotes, find the video, get in touch with Ashok today and take the next step for yourself. He's put together a wonderful team of people to help you and hold your hand, as you said earlier, to guide you along the way. And thank you so much for being here for me today. You've answered some wonderful questions and just spoken about it with so much clarity and confidence that's really been wonderful to listen to. So I appreciate all of your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's been wonderful. Absolutely. And for the listener, again, you can check out the link in the description, which leads to wellevator.com if you prefer to type that in. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And you can find this episode in the show notes section with all of the links and the transcript, as I mentioned, to make it really easy for you. And that concludes today's episode. Bye for now. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.